Hey, Jay. So is Pandemonia related to Master Pandemonium? You mean the guy with the baby hands? No. Baby hands? Like he has, what, tiny hands? No, he briefly had actual babies for hands. Who in turn have their own presumably baby-sized hands? What?! Jay Edden. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 437 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome in this brave new year, well, as we record this, it's not yet, but it will be when the episode comes out, uh, to some more X-Force. We are done with the X-Force road trip era. We're still very much within the John Francis Moore run of X-Force, although Adam Polina is no longer drawing, sadly. And uh, it's still pretty fun, and still feels like it's kind of in the middle of things. Yeah, it's very, very liminal feeling right now, and... That's definitely the case in both of the issues that we're looking at, and I think doubly so in the case of the annual, um, which also contains a blast from the very distant past. If you're familiar with X-Force, you might be thinking New Mutants, but no, this is something older. Indeed, because of course 1998 was the year when all the annuals were two different characters or teams or whatever. We've already covered at least one of those, right? Right, uh, X-Men and Fantastic Four. Oh yeah, that one was really fun. Right, with the silly guy who didn't have a supervillain name. And the Psycho Man's emotion-controlling box. Right, with the good UI. And the Poker Twinks. And the Poker Twinks. Well, I would say these comics don't have any Poker Twinks, but of course Cannonball is one of the characters in these comics, and he was one of the Poker Twinks in that annual, so there's your link. But we are here not to talk about Poker Twinks, well, not specifically. But to bury them. Uh, Don't bury Poker Twinks, they're nice. You could bury them in, I don't know, Bubble Bath. Oh, well, okay, you can put Poker Twinks in Bubble Bath if you want. But that's also not the topic of this episode, although now I'm kind of disappointed it's not. The topic of this episode... Or Jelly Beans. Or Jelly Beans. Is X-Force! So let's talk about what they've been up to. Okay, so the team has been kind of in a state of flux, and their ranks have changed pretty significantly. They're now living in a warehouse in San Francisco, and, um, who's, who's on the roster these days? Okay, so not currently in Bubble Bath, we have longtime members Siren, Proudstar, previously Warpath, Meltdown, previously Boomer, previously Boom Boom, Sunspot, and Moonstar, previously Mirage, previously Psyche, previously Spellbinder. Although most people don't remember uh, the last couple of those. Cannonball, for his part, has just returned following a stint on the X-Men, including said Poker Twink days. Domino has also just returned from a stint with a surgically induced brain injury that made her stop bank robberies for a while before getting her brain fixed. Also on the team is newcomer Bedlam, Jesse Aronson, who has decided that he is there for the long haul, regardless what anyone else on the team might think. Former New Mutant Skids hung out with X-Force for a few days recently, but she mostly just ended up getting teleported away to parts unknown during a fight. That pretty much covers X-Force. We should maybe introduce the champions? They're not going to show up until the second issue we're covering today, but still. They existed. They were a collection of all the characters in Marvel at a certain point in the 70s that weren't already on a team. That's pretty much it. They are a motley assemblage. That brings us to X-Force number 85, Possession. 
written by John Francis Moore, penciled by Angel Anzueta, inked by Bud LaRosa, colored by Marie Javins, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicrafts, Emerson Miranda. The cover is really fun and uh, is actually kind of representative of what we're going to get. Hey! It's X-Force, but they all have glowing yellow eyes and these symbols on their foreheads, and also they're dressed all fancy and evil-like, with, you know, cravats and capes and vests and cleavage and other evil things. It's very Key and Peele sexy vampires. It kind of is, yeah. So, let's not go to the sexy vampires yet. Let's go to the aforementioned Skids, that is Sally Blevins, and also the woman she was teleported away with and by during that fight we mentioned, Locus, Raina Piper. They were teleported into the icy wastes and ca- captured by someone off-panel last time we saw them, like five issues ago. Right now, we still don't see their captor, but we do see them in a prison cell just chock full of skeletons. Not only is it a prison cell chock full of skeletons, it is a skeleton prison cell in Latveria, which I gotta say is my my one disappointment in this issue was that I was really hoping for Doctor Doom, and we did not get Doctor Doom. So I just want to put that out there. Just first off, Doctor Doom will not be appearing in this episode. I mean, Latveria is a big country. Doctor Doom, I would say, can't be everywhere, but come to think of it, he's got, like, so many Doombots, he could send Doombots to basically anywhere. You go into, like, a Latverian KFC, there's a fucking Doombot taking your order and demanding that you submit. Yeah, I assume there's a fairly dense Doombots per square mile spread. Doombot tour guides, Doombot receptionists, Doombot bus drivers, Doombot muggers, and Doombot victims. This is sort of building up to Latveria being populated exclusively by Doombots. This actually reminds me of a recent issue of Fantastic Four that was incredibly beautiful and heartbreaking, but uh, that's too long of a story. Right. So, um, Locus is not okay. She is really, really, really freaked out by their captor, and she's also started acting strange. Her eyes are glowing yellow, and she's got a sigil on her forehead. And she keeps talking about, you know, how that person's voice is in her head. She's very Renfield. I don't know, maybe I just have Renfield on the brain. I saw a play recently uh, called Dracula, A Feminist Revenge Fantasy, Really, which was great, actually. And the woman that played Renfield was astonishingly good. So creepy. Now, their captor is a sorceress named Pandemonia. Pandemonia. Yeah, so when she showed up, did you think she was familiar, like somebody we'd seen before? I did not think she was someone I had seen before, but I did check to make sure that she wasn't related to Master Pandemonium. Yeah, yeah, as referenced uh, earlier, she, alas, is not. I, I kept being really confused, and I looked her up, and no, this is this storyline is really the only place she ever is. But I realized what I was thinking of. This is X-Force. She's a woman with white hair, a mask that covers the top part of her face— and some flowing garments. Uh, she reminded me a lot of Fantasia from the Mutant Liberation Front. I had completely forgotten that Fantasia existed, so she did not remind me of her. Fantasia's great. I mean, okay, we know almost nothing about her. Mainly, she's just a great character design. I think originally a Rob Liefeld character design, so I gotta give the guy credit. Like, stellar, stellar look. So, what's Pandemonia's deal, anyway? 
So she's an evil sorceress lady. We'll find out more about her bigger backstory in a bit. Uh, But she's apparently been imprisoned in this castle full of skeletons for like 600 years trying to get out. But she can't get out. But now she manages to have captured um, two mutants, one of whom is a teleporter. But wait a minute, this is confusing. Because, like, I don't think they teleported into her castle at the end of X-Force number 80, did they? No, no, they just teleported into the into the snowy mountains. How did she get them in there? She can't get out of the castle. Maybe she's stuck in the valley in general? Maybe they wandered up to the castle in search of, you know, food or lodging or something. Oh, they just went there to uh, to use the phone, but it turned out there were a bunch of people in, you know, black and white suits and party hats and, um, you know, a sweet transvestite from transsexual Transylvania. Yeah, after they met in Rainfire's refresher course. <laughs> exactly. Oh, man, now I'm just imagining that guy from Rocky Horror who played that character playing Rainfire. It's a good thought. My wheels. I can't move my wheels. That joke's for you, probably like half a dozen people listening to this episode. It's not that obscure, buddy. I'm just saying, the overlap between Rocky Horror fans and 90s X-Force fans is, you know, actually, come to think of it, our exact demographic, isn't it? Probably more significant than you think. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well, I don't feel as alone as I often do then. Community. This is what community's all about. No, community is about an unlikely group of misfits at Greendale Community College who form a Spanish study group which grows into a lasting friendship. And we're getting our six seasons in a movie. Still can't believe it. And Pandemonia is is a proper evil wizard type, complete with declamation. Clearly, the youth of today have no respect for their elders. But then, you mortals have always been an upstart breed. She's also got two giant cats who are very cool. Uh, maybe they represent that she's an old lady who looks young and conventionally attractive. Do, do people still use the word cougar? Is that a thing now? I don't know, but they were definitely using it in 1998 because I double-checked. I wasn't sure when it had come into common use, and apparently it was earlier in the 90s. Um, but I think that, that that specific meaning of the term cougar doesn't have as much to do with appearance as it does with proclivity for dating younger men. Oh, well, Pandemonia doesn't seem inclined to date anyone. She just really likes possessing people and being evil and looking cool. She does possess a large number of youth. Yeah, and I mean, I guess really toxic dating could be similar to uh, attempting to possess someone, so there's that. Sure. Meanwhile in San Francisco... X-Force is in their warehouse headquarters, which I really appreciate that it actually looks like a warehouse that they've just sort of crammed some furniture into. Like, it is not cozy, but it's also very much like the place that a lot of us in our early 20s would spend time or hang out. Like, we didn't know how to decorate, and we didn't have the budget to decorate, and we were living wherever we could. I mean, there's also thrifted stuff from Ikea, but... True, true. Everything gets into the thrift cycle eventually. Mmm, the thrift cycle. I feel like that would be the vehicle of a bargain-themed superhero. Or a socioeconomic textbook. As the case may be. So, in said warehouse, Boom Boom, which is to say Meltdown, which is to say Boomer, which is to say Tabitha Smith, is looking through the boxes of stuff that she'd been storing with her dad. This explains why she still has any stuff, because, of course, X-Force had been living in the X-Mansion, and Operation Zero Tolerance completely stripped that place clean. And she finds an old photo of her with Rusty and Skids. 
inexplicably blonde rusty. Uh, true, inexplicably blonde rusty. Also, she's wearing her early X-Force outfit instead of her New Mutants outfit that she would have been wearing when she was hanging out with them. But regardless, uh, yeah, we've talked about Skids earlier, Sally Blevins. She was on the New Mutants for a while, at, after which she was forgotten, ended up on the Mutant Liberation Front, ended up one of Magneto's acolytes, was brainwashed during part of that. But also, she and Boom Boom and Rusty all met before the New Mutants when they were with X-Factor. That's absolutely true. The three of them, and Richter, and Artie, and Leech. And I guess Caliban, does Caliban count? Probably not. Uh, but yeah, they've known each other for a long time, and it's a nice little bit of acknowledgement, despite the improper costume and hair color. As for Rusty, uh, he went by Firefist exactly once ever in one panel, and uh, was made more well-known by Deadpool 2, the, the second movie. Um, he's dead. He, he got murdered in space at one point, and it was very sad. Also, I'm going to take this opportunity to apologize. In episode 433, we answered a listener question about the whereabouts of Rusty, and we had much fun uh, stating our theories about why he wasn't resurrected on Krakoa. But uh, we got that wrong. The anonymous listener who had asked it got in touch with us later and said they'd checked, and he apparently had been resurrected. Uh, That, in fact, was in X-Men Unlimited Infinity Comic number 62. But to my credit, he has no lines, and he's in one panel, so it wasn't very memorable. Now... Now, Tabitha, for her part, is feeling bad for other reasons. Um, She has been trying to find Skids, but hasn't yet. She doesn't know where Skids ended up, but she doesn't have to worry about that for long because Skids has appeared downstairs. And when when Tabitha goes downstairs, she finds Skids standing over an unconscious X-Force. And Skids is dressed a little differently. Like, she's got a long skirt and a flowy, bodicey blouse and also glowing eyes and also a little symbol on her forehead. Hey, like on the cover. Shortly thereafter, Locus teleports Pandemonia and her and her cats in, and she possesses everybody. I love that Pandemonia's like, hey, I've been stuck in this castle and or valley for 600 years. I can finally get out. And she immediately just goes straight to world domination, to trying to possess a bunch of powerful people. I would have at least, like, I don't know, gone to a restaurant, went to a museum, took a nap, whatever. She's got priorities, dude. She does have priorities. Uh, However, her timing could have been better because not everybody was home. Cannonball and Moonstar were going for a run on a nearby beach. Running in sand is hard, but I guess they are, you know, trained very well as superheroes, so probably their ankles are fine. I love their conversation here. Specifically, I love that it immediately starts to rehabilitate the way Cannonball was characterized as this, like, green, new, awestruck character when he was on the X-Men. As he says. I don't know, Danny. This is all so unreal. I never imagined I'd end up in California. Don't give me that. I'm just a poor boy from Kentucky rap, Sam. You're no country bumpkin. You've done more and traveled farther as a teenager than most people do in a lifetime. I feel like John Francis Moore is just pointing at that panel and glaring hard at everyone who's been writing the X-Men for years. Seriously, though, you dated a lady, well, not from space, just from the UK, but who lives in space. Yeah, right? Big deal. Uh, Bedlam, that's Jesse Aronson, the newest member of the team, also didn't get possessed because he wasn't home because he was Cannonball and Mirage's ride. He just hates running. To be fair, I say this as a runner. Running is terrible. There's a bit of conflict as he says something insensitive about Sam being here instead of caring for his sick mom, while, you know, Jesse is is there primarily to look for his missing brother. 
And yeah, and Mirage just tells Jesse off. I do really enjoy this. Like, Jesse's this sort of happy, friendly dude, but he can be a bit of a dumbass in his interactions with people. Uh, and I just love that he's the member of the team that nobody wants there, except Domino, who just sort of dropped Jesse off and then wandered off to do other stuff. He's like the kid whose parents are friends with your parents, so you're told you have to be friends with them? Like that. Kind of like Runaways, but, uh, well, really only in that one specific regard now that I think about it. Yeah. So they all head back to the warehouse, but it's been, uh, redecorated, I guess? significantly um it's now evil and sexy it is but not just like they put up some i don't know pinups and pictures of baphomet on the walls or something it's been totally restructured it's been transformed it's like a medieval castle and there are columns and gargoyles and torches and you can see the stars through the ceiling it's uh, it's pretty badass i gotta say it's a good glow up for uh that warehouse the torches well the lamps i'll have little angry faces on them They do! They do! It's so delightful! And it's not just the location that has been uh, remixed visually, because all of those X-Force folks who got possessed by Pandemonia, they are now all wearing these flowy, archaic, darkity outfits with red highlights all over them. But very specifically archaic. I mean, you, you said that Pandemonia's first stop was world domination. I think you may be mistaken. I think she may have swung by a hot topic on the way. Seriously, it's like Renaissance Hot Topic. That's the name of this aesthetic. And, like, she's part of it, too. She's on this throne, and her red skirt is super long and, like, draping artfully down freaking ten stairs. And, like, her throne has that little forehead possession symbol at the very top. That's that's excellent, consistent branding. It's so good. Cannonball wishes that, you know, Ilyana magic were here and alive because she seems like someone who would, would be able to navigate this significantly better than any of them are equipped to oh yeah Ilyana spent a lot of time in hot topics i mean hell dimensions run by sorceresses and or sorcerers so hot topics so hot topics bedlam is like dude my power is just to disrupt machines and computers uh i'm gonna go get a burrito i'll see you guys later he's such a little shit but like he's so just charismatic and positive that i can't hate him i mean he's not wrong in this context oh he's totally not wrong But the third member of this non-possessed part of the team, Danny, she does pretty well because she's immune, as it turns out, to Pandemonia's magic. She has been marked by Asgard because she used to be a Valkyrie. Pandemonia laments that... And eons old accord between the House of Chaos and the Lord of Valhalla prevents me from feasting on your soul. Ha ha. Pandemonia knows that a good villain has to explain everything and, like, with twice as many words as are actually necessary. She's had 600 years to practice, just, like, looking in her Latvarian mirror, talking to her cats. So the the still-free heroes realize they are massively outmatched, and they escape and head to the first place they think of where they might find someone who can help, which is a random occult bookstore, which is about as useful as you'd expect if you've ever been in a random occult bookstore. This place is amazing. It's run by a goth lady named Cruella and a dude who claims to be a high priest of the Mephistalian church who are both just watching Bewitched on a small TV in the corner. Um, And they are no help whatsoever. But on their way out, a besuited old man with a cane directs them to someone who may be able to assist them. And they, lacking any better options, go, sure, random stranger, we will follow your directions. 
And of course, any of us familiar with Marvel would think, oh, they're going to go see Doctor Strange at a Sanctum Sanctorum. But A, that's in New York, not San Francisco, where they are, so it's really far, although I'm sure it has doors that open into it all over the place, but still. And B, they specifically talk about how they can't just go randomly calling on Doctor Strange. But I would like to point out that in New Mutants number 77, when Danny herself was being turned into an evil Valkyrie because of some Asgard Pella stuff, they did just show up at Doctor Strange's place and say, hey, give us a hand. So they totally could, damn it. Maybe they know that they've used up what little welcome they might have had. That's probably it. They're just like on that list next to the bar, the, the do not serve list. Yes. Like, Wong knows them by sight. They show up, and Wong just sort of, like, twitches his pinky finger, and the door is just suddenly bricked over, and it's just a blank wall. With a little bit of graffiti that just says, fuck you. <laughs> yup. Do you think it would be signed? Would it say, fuck you, dash Wong? Like it was from Wong? Is, is he that petty? Fuck you, sincerely, Wong. Oh, it would be sincerely Wong. Fuck you, sincerely Wong. I would say that's the episode title, but uh, I don't think we can say fuck in an episode title on Apple Podcasts, and that's where most of our listeners are. Man, fuck those guys. Not the listeners, Apple Podcasts. Our listeners are great. Damn it, Apple, let us use more swears. Yeah, swears are great. They are, they are the spice of language. Mmm, spicy, spicy swears. You wouldn't take away our turmeric, would you? No, so don't take away our fucks. You wouldn't download a car, so don't take away our fucks. I would absolutely download a car. But you wouldn't take away our fucks. No. Well, you've got the right of it, then. Like, T and I have had this conversation regarding parenting. Like, we are going to teach our child the swears along with the rest of the words, because they're useful. They are useful. So one time when I was in preschool, I feel like I've told this story on the podcast before, but probably like yes. eight years ago or something. You have. Uh, yeah. Okay, well, for any listeners who don't remember whenever the hell that was... um. My dad enjoys wordplay, and he uh, was enamored of the phrase, just for the halibut, like, you know, fish. Uh, and so at one point, I was um, coming in from recess, and I, I came in from recess and, and sat under a table for reasons I do not recall. And the uh, preschool teacher asked why, and I said, just for the halibut. But I was a small child, so probably my enunciation was not clear. And um, thus, I got in really bad trouble, and my dad had to explain and realized that it was kind of hard to explain why that was a funny joke, even though it's an inherently funny joke. It's really stupid that you would get in trouble for saying hell. I, right? I mean, like, it was a Jewish preschool, but I'm pretty sure hell doesn't fully exist in Judaism. The Jewish afterlife is very confusing. I've never really wrapped my brain around it. Yeah, but even if it did, like, the arbitrariness of swears and the, the, the like, muted down versions that don't count, like, why is it that kids are allowed to say dang and not damn when literally it means the same thing? Like, it's a stand-in for it. Or heck and hell. That's an entirely valid question. Uh, in Dragon Ball Z, they couldn't say hell, so when Goku died and went to hell, um, they slightly edited the sweatshirts of all the demons who were there to say H-F-I-L, and so apparently the name of the dimension was the home for infinite losers, not hell. So that's the name of my house. Harsh. Anyway, these characters are not in the home for infinite losers, and they do say fuck a lot. Uh, where, where are they in reality? Do they say fuck? I don't think they were allowed to say fuck. Well, that's just because of the comics, code. They were saying it all the time off-panel. Boom Boom especially. They're at the home of not Stephen Strange, but another sorcerer who likes to read spellbooks while floating in the air, which is a very sorcerer thing to do. That is Jennifer Kale. Let's disambiguate here. This is not Jennifer Hale, the woman that voiced Commander Shepard in Mass Effect and Carol Danvers in Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Uh, this is, yeah, Jennifer 
Kale. So Jennifer Kale, you may recall, especially if you are a listener to the Patreon only uh, Howard the Duck podcast uh, spinoff of Tighten Up the Defense. Uh, Jennifer Kale is an old Man-Thing slash Howard the Duck character. She was a sorceress who worked for a dude named Dakeem. Uh, later on, she went to college and double majored in painting and interpretive dance. Uh, anyway, she's here. Jennifer points out that Earth-616 is a pivotal part of the nexus of reality, so a whole lot of, of demons and sorcerers and that sort tend to come in from other dimensions. And in fact, as our heroes describe the white-haired lady they met to her, she looks in her books and realizes that Pandemonia is in fact a succubus daughter of a lesser chaos lord. And that means it's fight time. Indeed. They head in through the brick wall in the warehouse. Uh, Cannonball, I guess, is taking a stint on X-Factor now. And uh, everybody fights everybody. They're trying not to, you know, murder their possessed friends. One thing that's kind of fun uh, is that since Danny's powers are not fully recovered from Psy War, where everybody lost their telepathy, she can't fully muster a psychic bow and arrow the way she normally does. So she just makes herself a little Psylocke-style psychic knife. Hey, that works. Kale uses this distraction to undo Pandemonia's glamour magic, revealing Pandemonia and the cats as really being spiky demon types who just look like a different kind of cool. I feel like we went from, you know, goth metal to death metal. Uh, I like both. Yeah, that, that's about the, the long and short of it. Uh, that also frees Meltdown, Siren, Proudstar, and Sunspot from Pandemonia's control. Although... Even when the glamour goes away, they are still in, in the Hot Topic clothes, which means that, that they're actually dressed in those, that Pandemonia was like, the, like, you're possessed now, gotta dress you accordingly. Right, right, like she just magicked up her closet, or possibly a door directly into the Renaissance equivalent of a Hot Topic, and they all picked out their outfits, and they tried different things on, and they had one of those montages where, like, you know, Proudstar comes out, and he's wearing a clown outfit that looks like it's from a Renaissance Hot Topic, and everybody just shakes their head and gives a thumbs down, then he comes out in a couple more outfits, and then he eventually comes out with that rad cravat, and everybody just smiles and gives thumbs up, and that's what he's gonna wear. Okay. During the fight, an interesting thing happens. Specifically, Danny gets blasted by Pandemonia and goes into this sort of all-white, silhouetted, sparkly form. And we've seen that form before, right? Right. We saw that after Reality Warper Arcadia messed with Danny's quantum energy in the previous issue of X-Force. Yeah, this will keep being a thing. Uh, but between that cosmic-y stuff and Jennifer Kale's magic, they managed to banish Pandemonia to the Chaos Plane. Uh, and the good guys win! And um, despite being rescued, Locust just sort of snarkily flounces away. Uh, there is no redemption arc for her. She's just delightfully terrible. Skids also leaves because she never even wanted to be part of a superhero team again after everything that she went through. She wasn't even supposed to be here today. And in fact, we won't see her for a number of years until later in Chris Claremont's Extreme X-Men run. Now, while all of this is going down, Domino is away and she is touring a hospital where she meets a little girl who the Aguilar Institute has been after. That's the organization of evil scientists that's been experimenting on various mutants uh, like Sunspot back in the day. Apparently, this girl in the hospital has mutant powers. She can transform part or all of her body to look reptilian and is from almost Reno, Nevada. That is, of course, the town with you know, the disproportionately high mutant population. 
the one we really liked, and we'll be getting to that next issue. But not the next issue we're covering, because we are now covering X-Force Champions Annual 1998, with a story called Demon from Within. This is written by Tom and Mary Bierbaum, penciled by Terry Shoemaker, inked by Sean Parsons and Harry Candelario, and lettered by Richard Sarkins and Comicraft and Emerson Miranda. So I hadn't heard of Tom and Mary Bierbaum, so I looked them up. They've done very, very little Marvel, but... I learned about their history. Apparently, they were both, as young people, heavily involved in the Legion of Superheroes fandom in the 60s and 70s. That's like that future space superhero team in the DC universe. And they met through that fandom. Like, this is before the internet, so that took some doing. And then they got married. And then years later, they became Legion of Superheroes writers themselves. They wrote like a whole volume of it. Uh, Apparently during that run, as I was Googling this, I found that they retconned a character named Shvan Aaron as having been trans. And I don't know if that was handled well or poorly, but that was rare in the early 90s. So a tentative approval. Uh, Terry Shoemaker, we've seen a bit on post-Judgment War X-Factor and various villains from around. I really like his varied faces and body types. Like, not super exaggerated the way we see sometimes, but just varied. His people look like different people. Yeah, it's really nice. Um, in Northern California, a small cult of Hades declares one of its members a traitor. It's a whole thing. I like that they have a statue of Hades, and the statue doesn't look like a statue. It's just this full-color guy with, like, realistic fabric. Maybe they robbed Madame Tussaud's evil wax museum. Maybe it's a mannequin they just dressed up. It's just a mannequin. They just, like, drew a beard on. And the X-Force happens to be driving nearby until they have to use their powers to fend off a rock slide, and it turns out the rock slide was caused by an enormous hand reaching up from the cliff above. Wait a damn minute. Giant hand emerging from the Earth in a cataclysmic fashion? Okay, as one of the four people in the universe that liked the Eternals movie, I'm very excited about this, even if it's completely unrelated. Like, not to go into detail, but that's a big thing that happens in the Eternals movie. And, like, it's never mentioned again in the MCU, except for one tiny little Easter egg in one of the TV shows. You'd think people would talk about that, like, oh, hey, you know that giant goddamn hand sticking out of the planet over there? Uh, what do you think about that? Like, weird that we don't, you know, talk about it periodically. On the scale of weird shit that's gone down on that Earth, I don't know that that's even going to register. But it's just sticking out all the time. It's like the moon saying C-H-A in the tick after Chairface Chippendale tried to carve his name into it. I mean, maybe if it were a dick, it would get more airplay. (laughs) That would have been a very different movie. I know the Eternals was famous for having the first MCU sex scene, but uh, that would have been, you know, more. by. uh, It doesn't necessarily need to be sexual. It could be a flaccid dick. Just a big old flaccid dick sticking out of the planet. This episode's going to be one for the books, isn't it? I'm not sure which books. Not ones that the comic code uh, approves of. The bad books. <laughs> That's us. Anyway, um, the team goes to investigate the giant flaccid penis, I mean, a uh, hand sticking out of the planet, and um, they discover Hercules fighting off the, uh, the cult of, of Hades. And this is the 90s, so like Hercules' outfit is fucking amazing. He's got one of those head socks that Gambit wears, but it's metal. And he's got, like, this red toga top and pants. But over that, he's got a metal girdle. But most importantly, these thigh-high boots made of studded metal bands. It's kind of like those tall leather sandal wraps that we've seen him in in the past, but it's all metal. That must be so hard to get into or out of. They've probably got a hidden zipper. Oh, okay. That, that, that makes sense. Or I guess it could be, like, Olympic magic. One of those. Now, the leader of the cult, Link 
tries to hold the traitor Victoria hostage, but Sam saves her with Blaston, and X-Force and Hercules manage to drive off the cultists. At which point, Hercules catches everyone up. What the cult is trying to do is raise a titan, and Hercules arrived, you know, not in time to completely stop this, as illustrated by the giant hand, but he was able to stop the ritual designed to fully awaken it. And I suppose since we're an X-Men podcast, we should point out that, like, we keep saying Hercules. Like, yeah, the mythological figure Hercules, like Thor, he's a superhero in the Marvel Universe. Like Thor, he's kind of an arrogant dick sometimes. Canonically, he's fucked, like, everyone. That's true. And this is not the first time that Hades has tried to do something like this. Hades himself tried to pull off a similar stunt years ago, and Hercules and the champions beat him, at which point Zeus forced Hades to give the champions the power to reverse the spell should it ever be activated again. Spoiler, this did not actually happen. I mean, the first part did. That was the first storyline of the champions book. But uh, yeah, not the second part. Well, we'll get to that. So let's talk a little bit about the champions. Who the hell are these guys? They're just one of those grab bag teams, kind of like the Defenders. Um, initially, it was Hercules, Ghost Rider, Black Widow, Iceman, and Angel. Like, what a random assortment of characters. Pretty much as near as I can tell, they were just the characters that weren't otherwise occupied and Marvel wanted to sell another team book. Yeah, that's even weirder than the Defenders, honestly. That's true, that's true. Uh, they at least, like, are eclectic for a reason. Um, which, come to think of it, Iceman and Angel were also on the Defenders. Nobody knew what to do with them for a long time. They really, really didn't. And I think it's it's that the, the two of them, if you're, that if you're going to stick a group of X-Men on another team, Beast needs to be there or it doesn't quite click. Yeah, and of course he was an Avenger during this era, so there you go. I mean, the 70s when the champions were, were a thing. There was also another mutant character on the champions named Darkstar. I love her name, and not just because it's a really fun John Carpenter movie. Uh, but she didn't join the team until issue number 10, so it makes sense that she wouldn't get roped into to this reunion that's based on the first few issues of Champions. Later, she would be killed by Weapon 12. Yeah, yeah, she would. Or possibly Weapon 13. One of them weapons. Now, Sam immediately trusts Victoria, that's the traitor from the cult. Nobody else does. Oh, especially not Boom Boom. Remember, Boom Boom recently hooked up with Sunspot, Cannonball's best friend, and so Cannonball's pretty uh, salty about that, understandably. And so the vitriol, like, these writers are not the usual writers of X-Force, but they're really working that part in. So at one point, uh, Sam gets caught in one of Boom Boom's time bombs when they're trying to get through that avalanche, and he just has a thought bubble with, like, a thrown battle axe in it as he looks at her. And when she sees him with Victoria, she has a thought bubble with a sexy devil witch lady. And uh, when she yells at him, her speech bubble is just filled with all these different font types and sizes as she just screams at different volumes and intensities. It's wonderful. And all of them argue, while Danny Moonstar and Hercules decipher the spell because of pantheon powers, sort of, and, and are a little bit flirty about it. It's it's really fun. I also enjoy uh, Danny claiming that it's got nothing to do with being a Valkyrie, that anybody could spot the Seventh Hell dialect. Now, they discover something a little bit weird, and that is that the spell contains a phrase that basically means, nah-uh, which negates the part where the Titan doesn't immediately destroy whomever cast the spell. OJ, you say nah-uh, but as someone who also grew up in the 90s and watched Wayne's World way the fuck too many times, I think ah. what that... Yeah, what that Seventh Hell dialect is really saying is... Not. Exactly. 
And then the rest of the champions show up. And my god, this is... Honestly, the best way I can think of to describe them is a group of adults trying their best to look cool at the reunion of their college garage band. Oh, especially contrasted with X-Force. Because remember, this may not be the X-Force road trip era, but X-Force mostly just wears normal, casual clothing. They just look like a bunch of young adults. And here we have, you know, Black Widow in her super spy cat suit, Johnny Blaze, the former Ghost Rider, on his flaming-wheeled motorcycle, Angel and Iceman being Angel and Iceman. Yeah, I noticed that if Johnny Blaze is the former Ghost Rider, why is his motorcycle on fire? Should we be concerned? Uh, I feel like he's either very bad at Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, or maybe it's like a, a parting gift. Like, maybe instead of giving him a watch or a pen when he retired from Ghost Ridering, they gave him a flaming motorcycle. Huh. Anyway, thus assembled, the champions take their positions and perform the ritual that is presumably to return the Titan to its home dimension, or to, to de-awaken it. But Danny recognizes that not from the original ritual, and turns out that what they're enacting, the ritual that they're going through, is actually to awaken the Titan, not to reverse it. Yup! So X-Force does their best to interrupt the whole thing by Siren screaming real loud like she's on an episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse, but, uh, it's too late. The Titan is waking up thanks to the power of 1990s sarcasm. There's another massive rock slide, and Sam gets hit on the head, after which Victoria leaves him for dead. And that's why you should never trust a cultist of Hades. No, no, no. Even if she says she's really good, then maybe just give her a minute to prove that. Also, speaking of the cult of Hades, Link, that's the cult leader, shows back up, and it turns out Victoria was a fake traitor all along. She was just there to lure the champions in so they could do the spell. Oh, and also Link is secretly Hades. Oh, and also the last time he fought the champions, he implanted false memories in them so that he could pull off this particular plan. Okay, dude, that is a long game. Implanting false memories in the team that beats you in the 70s so that in the 90s you can manipulate them to doing a spell that will require the casters of the spell to die so you don't have to die, but you can still summon a titan? Goddamn, dude. Yeah, that was 25 years ago. That's impressive, although in Marvel time it was less. Uh, but I want to go back to something from earlier. I want to go back to the fact that this cult to Hades, which is led by a guy that's actually Hades, had that mannequin that looked like Hades. That is an impressive level of self-absorption. Like, well done, Hades and or Pluto and or Lord of the Dead. So the champions are assembled in their high school band outfits. X-Force is sitting there in, like, you know, the stuff that they shuffled to the grocery store at uh, before they showered. And they're fighting not just literally the God of the Dead. Well, a God of the Dead. There are a lot in the Marvel Universe. But still, God of the Dead. They're also fighting a Titan. A giant, giant person who's underground, who has hands that poke out and cause lots of avalanches, and so if he comes all the way out, flaccid penis and everything else, it's going to be a real big problem. For those of you unfamiliar with Greek mythology, by the way, the Titans are the daddies of the Greek gods. They're the, they yes. are the precursors, and in one case, literal parent of, of the Greek gods. So they're, they're a big deal. Very large. Very large, just like actual parents. Speaking of large people, I enjoy that uh, James Proudstar, the former Warpath, is not blind to the fact that they are a little outmatched. Oh man, a Greek god? When I underestimate an opponent, I don't fool around. So, big fight. But remember how we mentioned that Victoria, the cultist lady, uh, left Cannonball for dead under a rock slide? Dick move. I know, right? 
Well, his friends go to find him, specifically his ex-girlfriend, Boom Boom, and his best friend, Sunspot, who he's kind of on the outs with because the two of them had been hooking up. And they are petrified when they find him that he might be dead. So Boom Boom gives Sam CPR, and boy howdy, the beer bombs are good at purple superhero narration of the most dramatic sort. Once those lips touched as an expression of attraction and desire... Now they meet in an act of utter desperation. You know, I don't know much about the Legion of Superheroes, except that they have Karate Kid and Matter Eater Lad and stuff, uh, but I kind of want to read the Beer Palms run if the narration's going to be like that. Meanwhile, X-Force and the Champions trick Hades into saying that he's responsible for the Titan's resurrection, at which point it immediately turns on him because of that not clause in the spell. And Hades, being a, a, a villain and thus a cowardly and superstitious type, teleports away. I love the way they do this. They're like, okay, shit, we need to get him to take responsibility for the spell so that the Titan tries to eat him instead of us. Um, And they just taunt him. They're just like, you know, Hades, you super suck a lot, and you could never be in charge of a plot like this. I bet somebody else is in charge and you were just doing what they said. I bet it was Zeus. Zeus is a lot cooler than you, right? And he's like, no, no, I'm the best villain of all. I did it. And the Titan's like, oh, you did it. I'm a chomp, you son. Which, incidentally, is actually what the Titan who fathered a bunch of the Greek gods did. Like, he, he swallowed them all whole. Oh, I, I know hamsters do that sometimes. Daddy hamsters eat the baby hamsters, and it's very true. Oh, mommy hamsters for... do too. Oh, so what you're saying is hamsters are terrible. Yeah. Okay, well, hamsters, fuck you. Hamsters who are listening to this podcast, uh, we like you all right, but please consider your decisions when it comes to eating your babies. Follow your weird hamster hearts. Well, I mean, you know, in a way that's respectful of your babies. Follow your weird hamster hearts. Hmm. So what I'm seeing is that the two of us disagree on many things in this podcast. That's what keeps it interesting. And one of those things is whether it's okay for hamsters to eat hamster babies. You're not a hamster. You can't judge them. I mean, I guess that's true, but cultural relativism is a slippery slope. Don't even get us started on dolphins. Dolphins. Fucking dolphins. Anyway, Hades is gone, and uh, the Titan is is not. He still wants to eat somebody and, you know, emerge from the ground and cause a lot of rock slides. Now, Siren determines that the ritual didn't so much raise the Titan as open a gate for him, and figures if they do it again, they can open that gate and push him back through. So they do. Using the power of not... And also of uh, zapping, specifically psychic zapping from Mirage. Her powers may not be fully recovered from the Psywar, but she is able to use them in their most traditional old school sense and show the Titan its greatest fear. Now, we, the reader, do not get to find out what that is, nor do any of the other members of the team. So I think this is a great point to randomly theorize. What is the greatest fear of a Titan? Uh, so I think he is uh, called on to, um, to to present in front of his Titan class, except he's not wearing any pants, and he's got an erection, and he has to go to the bathroom, and he didn't study uh, or prepare anything for this presentation at all, uh, and the entire audience is clowns. I think he's like a dog. I think he's scared of vacuum cleaners. Have to be a big vacuum cleaner. No. A vacuum cleaner beat up Daredevil once. Yeah. Inferno was a good time. 
Anyway, uh, it works because of vacuum cleaners and or not wearing pants while presenting. Uh, we actually don't find out. And the characters even comment on the fact that none of them were able to witness what this was. And I like that. It does make it seem a little otherworldly, like a little almost Lovecraftian, like things man was not meant to know, which you kind of want when you have a being on the scale of a titan, not just a god, but like a god to a god. So speaking more seriously, I think that's a fun narrative choice. Now, we close with Black Widow affirming Siren's leadership abilities and Victoria basically telling Sam that uh, she ships him and Bobby and, and Tabitha and then fucking off to get arrested. Yeah, and you know, honestly... I kind of ship Sam and Bobby and Tabitha. And just like the members of X-Force stuck never knowing what Titans fear, you, our dear listeners, have questions. Ryalem asks on Tumblr, Maybe you mentioned it long ago and I missed it, but I just noticed Monet Saint-Croix is an anagram of Monte Cristo plus an X. I can't, honestly can't recall the permutations of her backstory, but was there ever a sign that she's some sort of reference to the Alexandre Dumas novel? The Count of Monte Cristo. I never noticed that. Monte Cristo X is indeed an anagram of Monet Saint Croix. Ah, that's so cool. Isn't it? Uh, I mean, it could just be as simple as uh, Scott Lobdell was really hungry when he was designing X-Force and he just wanted a Monte Cristo sandwich. They are very good sandwiches. Uh, I, I would love one right now, actually. I'm, I'm quite hungry. That would be good. But as far as the Count of Monte Cristo, so... Uh, Officially, I don't think so. I asked Dr. Internet very thoroughly, and the only thing I found, randomly enough, was the transcript of an online role-playing session from the Heroes Assemble Mush website. Uh, there was a scene where Aurora was acting in a movie adaptation of The Count of Monte Cristo and talks to M about it. Um, I don't think that's canon, though, and I'm pretty sure Scott Lobdell isn't on that mush. But there are some parallels. I mean, it's not as parallel as... Angel's family history literally being a retelling of Hamlet. Seriously, look it up. Uh, but there are some parallels. Um, I guess spoilers for a 180-year-old book, if you haven't read The Count of Monte Cristo. It's actually a very, very good book. I recommend it. Um, so, like Edmond Dantes, the uh, main character of The Count of Monte Cristo, Monet was also imprisoned for a very long time by somebody who was angry at her. But uh, whereas he was imprisoned in, well, prison, she was imprisoned in a mute, red, razor-sharp form. So not exactly the same. And also like Edmund, she was disguised for a long time, unbeknownst to those around her. But uh, she was disguised as penance and couldn't do anything about it, and he was disguised as various people, including a mysterious merchant nobleman something-something, and uh, that was his choice. Uh, I mean, I guess they do both get their revenge on the people who imprisoned them, but uh, M's revenge on M-Plate is a lot less final and thorough because it's a comic and, and villains always come back all the time, so... Uh, I don't know, but that is way too much of a coincidence to not be deliberate, so I'm going to go ahead and say that in my heart, M is totally a very loose, but still, a Count of Monte Cristo reference. Uh, maybe? I don't know, what do you think, Jay? I got nothing. Reasonable. Shifty Nifty asks on Tumblr, Can you recommend some story arcs good for a 15-year-old, preferably consisting of the core or more common characters? I'm looking to get my niece into the X-Men. So, I realize that this is my answer to, like, 90% of the questions asking for a recommendation, but I'm still gonna say X-Men Season 1. It is one of the best standalone volumes. It's a really good point of entry. It's modern 
without feeling you know, awkwardly dated, but it connects fairly seamlessly to the older material. I, I just, I really, really love that book. Oh, God, me too. Dennis Hopeless uh, does such an amazing job writing those versions of those characters. Uh, now, that is the original five X-Men. So, like, they are very traditional X-Men, but I don't know that they're, like, what most people think of when they think X-Men. So I'm not sure, would that be the place to start if you want somebody to get, like, the definitive X-Men experience? There isn't a the definitive X-Men experience, though. There is there is your definitive X-Men experience, and that's going to vary from reader to reader. The other thing that I would say is, you know, my recommendation is going to depend a lot about how your niece feels about sort of more dated material and what genres she likes and, you know, what what she likes, whether she's already a comics reader or not, for instance. Um, if she's pretty solid with older stuff, I would pretty much toss her into the Claremont run. Maybe I would, I think I might start with the Brood Saga. You know, that's a good point. Like, my go-to is always the Dark Phoenix Saga and Days of Future Past, which are very good. But by the Brood Saga, the X-Men really feel like, I don't know, they, they feel like the X-Men to me. It's also just such a fucking good story, and also Storm turns into a space whale. It's really, really good, and it's not as long as the Dark Phoenix Saga. And you don't have to have read, you know, the Phoenix Saga, which was years and years before that. And it's not as heavily continuity-rooted as Days of Future Past. Very true. Also less Hellfire Club, which I can see would not necessarily be everybody's cuppa. Now, another good jumping on point, although it does not meet your criterion of more core and common characters, might be Excalibur. I mean, it's got Nightcrawler and Shadowcat. They're pretty core. It's got Nightcrawler and Shadowcat, and its central characters, especially early on, are teenage girls. Very true. Very true. It's also just so solid. Like, having read through that multiple times over the years, it totally freaking holds up. Well, okay, the cross-time caper lasts too long, and then the book goes to hell once Claremont leaves before regaining itself. But the first part totally holds up. Yeah, and it's a very, very easy series to jump into without a lot of context, because it either explains things or is just weird enough overall that you don't really need them explained. Yeah, beyond that, I mean, I think Joss Whedon's run of Astonishing X-Men would also be a good place to jump in, but that's so much riffing on the older stuff that I feel like having a background in some of the 70s or 80s stuff might might help it a lot. I don't know. Listeners, I would love to hear more opinions on this. If you want to join us in the comments at explainthexmen.com, um, we can continue this discussion on and get your recommendations as well for Shifty Nifty. Speaking of things referenced on that website, we are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement from various fictional characters and concepts. It's been a while, but hey, we were just talking about him. Let's return to the angry Claremontian narrator. You know, if the dictionary were illustrated, and also if it were structured somewhat differently from standard, the picture under the entry for trying too hard would be you, Gabriel Swanson and Samantha Jane Waters. And I get it. I really do. You want to be cool. Everyone wants to be cool. But you gotta understand, there is a limit to how many leather garments and pairs of sunglasses you can pile on before you begin to reek of desperation, and also of the physical byproduct of wearing that much leather at once. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, this time in New Fairfield, Connecticut, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com, and sometimes they just stick out of the surface of the earth. 
Check out ExplainTheXMen.com for visual companions to every episode. No dicks. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of ExplainTheXMen.com. And please, take a moment to rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform, but maybe not with this episode in mind. It does really help, though. In two weeks, it's almost time for the hunt for Xavier. But first, vampires. Vampires.